You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom brought us the next message in our Greater Than Expected series titled, Jesus the Teacher. Let's check it out. Can we give a big welcome to everyone that's participating online today? Glad you guys are able to dial in. Glad you're here. Uh, so we do have Life Path coming up. Uh, it's going to be here next week. So if you want to be a part of that, please register online. It'd be great to be able to spend some time with you. Great for a uh, chance for you to hear. Um, but you know, all about the church, the history of the church, the culture, where we believe we're going, all those kind of things. So hopefully you're able to be a part of that. If you're wondering whether you should or should not be a part of Life Path, the answer is you should. Um, that was real easy. So if you haven't done that yet, I encourage you to do so. It'd be great to spend some time with you uh, going through everything. But here we are in the middle of a series that we've called Greater Than Expected. So this is a seven-week series that's going to take us into Easter, and I, for one, cannot believe that Easter is here, um, and we are getting closer by the minute. So Easter is uh, on our footsteps, and we started this uh, series called Greater Than Expected. And so week one, we looked at Jesus the Messiah, and so we looked through what it means and what the Old Testament promises were about the Messiah and what it means for us and what we can learn from that. And then we looked at Jesus the healer, and what can we learn from that? What does it mean for us as a church to continue in praying for healing the way that Jesus did and continue in that ministry. And then last week, um, Megan smashed it out of the park and did a message on Jesus the Restorer. Uh, If you were here last week, you know it was an incredible message. Um, The feedback we've had all week long has just been unbelievable. So a lot of really great stuff happened last week with that message on Jesus the Restorer. And today, we're going to be looking at Jesus the Teacher. Jesus the Teacher. And uh, that may sound familiar, and it's because by five or six weeks ago, and this idea kind of started with me with this idea of Jesus the teacher as part of another series we were doing as we looked at the idea of sanctification probably five or six weeks ago. The thought of Jesus the teacher and his earthly ministry and this realization that Jesus' ministry was packed with being a teacher, was packed with teaching. And here and now in the 21st century America, the importance of teachers and that role of being a teacher is something that we esteem and we respect and we aspire to be oftentimes. And teachers are an important part of our culture and society. Most of us, we could point to a teacher in our lives that had a positive impact on us. You know, we could also think about, you know, whether it's a coach of a team that we've been a part of or people who trained us at work or supervised us at work or something like that, but someone that had that teacher role has been important to us in our lives and someone we would point to as having a positive impact for us. And whether it's in elementary school or whether it's in a graduate program, we all have experiences that have benefited from someone acting as a teacher in our lives. And I've read a number of times, uh, there's something extremely unusual about people that win the lottery. People that hit the jackpot on the lottery, the phenomenon is that most of those people will go bankrupt. Even though they struck gold, even though they won the lottery, most of them will go bankrupt, many of them just in a few short years. And financial experts and psychologists have decisively said that this is because neither their attitudes towards money or their spending habits, or how they're utilizing money changes. So consequently, they end up in bankruptcy instead of financially doing well, which is what we would all assume would happen if somebody got a massive windfall like the lottery. But instead of that happening, it ends up in bankruptcy most of the time. In short, despite winning the lottery, a few short years, they're bankrupt and maybe a teacher that could have addressed attitudes towards money, could have addressed spending habits, could have addressed saving strategies, all those things, maybe it would have ended differently. But without a teacher, there's really a change in attitude or behavior, and consequently, the problems come. 
In the Bible, we're told that Jesus is referred to many things, many titles, many different offices, many different roles. We hear Jesus being talked about as being Lord, or the King of Kings, or the Messiah, or the Christ. We're told that he's a prophet. We're told that he's the Son of God. But as I said a few weeks ago, and there's a title that Jesus' early followers and disciples called him that we really talk about, and that's teacher. I'm not sure why we don't talk about Jesus as a teacher as much as some of the other titles and roles that I just rattled off. But Jesus' teaching have undoubtedly changed the world. Even somebody that doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they don't believe that he paid the price for their sins on the cross, they would have to acknowledge that the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth have changed human history and have gone on to change the world. And so today we're going to look at what is likely Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to read the Sermon on the Mount, it takes about 20 minutes. And if you have 20 minutes this afternoon, that's a great way to spend a coffee break. Take 20 minutes, read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And we're not going to read through the whole thing here today, but here's a few passages from what is probably the most famous portion of Jesus' teaching. Matthew 5, 20. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 47. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 6, 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything we need. My question is, how are we supposed to get there? We just read about having a righteousness that's better than the Pharisees. The Pharisees, if we know the New Testament well, we know that the Pharisees are the bad guy in the story of Jesus. But these people didn't know that. The Pharisees were the people that they looked up to. They were the people that they felt had it together. They were the people that God respected, that God blessed, that God was working with. They knew God more than you did. They were the people that the regular people respected and looked up to. And Jesus is saying, you've got to be better than them. You've got to be better than the best. Jesus then goes on in the next verse we read that you need to be perfect. And the Greek can be translated into English in a few different ways. It can also be translated as being complete or perfect or whole or being fully grown or fully matured. And this is especially true of the completeness of Christian character. And then the last verse we read, it talks about prioritizing the kingdom of God above everything. To have a righteousness that's better than the Pharisees. To be perfect, to be whole and complete. And to prioritize the kingdom of God above everything else. How are we supposed to get there? This comes contrary to everything that comes naturally to us. This is opposite to what the culture around us expects of you and me. So, we need a teacher. If we're going to live the life that Jesus is pointing us to here, we will not be able to do it alone. We need a teacher to show us how. To learn how to live with kingdom values kingdom priorities and kingdom purpose, it won't come naturally. We need a teacher to teach us, to show us and help us. And that is why Jesus as a teacher is so important. Someone to teach and model how we fulfill this call, to prioritize the kingdom above everything else, to live a godly, righteous life, to allow God to perfect us and complete us and correct us and restore us and heal us. That is the essence of discipleship. And for this, we need a teacher. And the first thing I'd invite you to write down if you're taking notes, and if you're not taking notes, today's a great day to take notes for the first time. No one is a self-taught disciple of Jesus. I know people that taught themselves how to play an instrument. I know people that taught themselves how to do DIY around the house, thanks to YouTube videos. But no one is a self-taught disciple of Jesus. 
to live the life God has called us to. We need him to teach us how. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all on the same mission. And for us to learn from Jesus, there's an important role that the Holy Spirit plays. This is from John 14. I am telling, in other words, teaching you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told or taught you. No one is a self-taught disciple. We need him to teach us. Now, we won't be able to read the whole of the Sermon on the Mount today, as I mentioned. Hopefully, you'll be able to catch 20 minutes to read it. But it's packed with incredible things from Jesus. And out of curiosity, I went onto Amazon and did a quick search and to see how many books are written on the subject of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is not books about the Gospel of Matthew. This is just on the Sermon on the Mount. The number, as of yesterday, was 781. Now, I'm sure there are more that you can't get on Amazon. But according to Amazon... There are 781 books just written about the portion of Scripture, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It is jam-packed with world-changing teaching. Now, some of the most well-known moments of all Jesus' teaching are recorded in these chapters. I'm going to hit on just a few of them just to kind of illustrate all these teachings that many of us will be very familiar with. They're all contained in this one sermon. The Beatitudes where Jesus redefines what it means to be blessed. The call to be salt and light in the world. That if you have lust or anger in your heart, you're guilty of adultery or murder. To cut out an eye or cut off a hand if it's causing us to sin. If we're slapped in the face, to turn the other cheek. If someone takes your shirt, give them your coat also. The call to love our enemies. To give to those in need without any expectation of praise or applause. This is where Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer. If we refuse to forgive others, we're told the Father will not forgive us. This is where we're told that you cannot serve two masters. No one can serve both God and money. And that we need to remove the log from our own eye before removing the speck in someone else's. And the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And many, many others, well-known teaching of Jesus is contained in this one sermon. And the Sermon on the Mount, it happens relatively close to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and his time of teaching. And this one sermon sets up our expectation of who Jesus is based on what he's teaching. It shows us his values and priorities. This sermon shows us the kind of person he is and invites us to do likewise. Our Sermon on the Mount, recorded over those three chapters in Matthew's gospel, covers a lot of ground. But this is the last thing. I'm going to read to you the last thing that Jesus says in this sermon, and it's a parable. So all the way down in chapter 7, verse 24, this is the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Now the temptation in our lives is, has been, and will always be, to build our lives on sand, to take the easy way out, to do it straightforward, simple, shortcuts, do whatever we need to do, minimizing it all. That is the temptation. And what is the sand? Well, the easy answer is anything except Jesus, anything that we will build our lives on that is not Jesus. But getting specific, it could be popular opinion. The sand could be cultural expectations, or tradition, or other religious views, or pressure from family or peers. Sand could be dictated by political views, 
literally anything else that is not Jesus. But what we're assured of here is that ignoring Jesus and building our lives on anything else ends badly. Now the flip side is the promise that when the storms of life hit, we can stand strong if we pay attention to the teachings of Jesus and that becomes the foundation of what we have built our lives on. And how do we seek the kingdom of God first? How do we be complete and whole and fully matured? How do we become better than the Pharisees? We listen to Jesus. We take his teaching seriously. That's what we build our lives upon. Is it easy? No. But when storms come, we find out it's worth it. Now this parable from Jesus, as he ends the Sermon on the Mount, it takes for granted that no matter what, you will build your life. I will build my life. Your actions, your decisions, your interactions with people, your conduct, your words, all of it builds our lives. You and I will build a life, but will we build it on the right foundation? As uh, getting ready in this idea of teaching and being a teacher, I looked to a, a book and an author, a guy called Howard Hendricks. He wrote a great book called uh, Teaching to Change Lives. And this is a quote from there that came to mind as I was thinking about all this. My great concern for you in life is not that you will fail, but that you will succeed in doing the wrong things. You will succeed on building on the wrong foundation. You will build a life. I will build a life. My family will build their lives but will we build it on the right foundation? Are we gonna succeed at building on sand, but then the storm comes and we find out it was for nothing? Or are we gonna build it on the teaching and the words of Jesus? Are we gonna build on the solid foundation that he gives? Another great verse from Isaiah. This is actually a verse that uh, the pastor that uh, was at my baptism shared with me. Isaiah 30, verse 20. You will see your teacher with your own eyes. Your own ears will hear him. Right behind you, a voice will say, this is the way you should go, whether to the right or to the left. Leaning on the teachings of Jesus. Decisions to make, how do we conduct ourselves? How do we go through life? Leaning on that teacher that is instructing us to go to the left or the right. Now the sermon ends with the parable that we've already read and the promise of the parable is that by building our lives on the teaching of Jesus, we can stand strong through life. By that, but that, that means the effort and discipline of building on rocky, stable ground compared to taking the easy way out by building on sand. And seeing who's standing when the storms come, it's better to build on the rocky ground. After Jesus tells this parable, we get this comment immediately afterwards. Matthew 7, 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers, of religious law. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the whole Sermon on the Mount, including that parable we read, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. I wrote this down, and it was helpful for me as I kind of made sense of that, and I'll share it with you. For the crowd listening to the Sermon on the Mount, they were left amazed at what they'd heard, surprised at the authority Jesus spoke with, and started comparing him to the teachers they were used to hearing. I wanna just walk through those thoughts. Really what's gonna be most of the message today is really just walking through those three things about being amazed, about the authority of Jesus, and about the comparing him to what they were used to hearing. So the first thing, reaction to Jesus the teacher number one, amazed. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. 
Now, typically, this Greek word that's used for amazed is used in the Gospels to describe the response uh, of people to Jesus' teaching. The teaching of Jesus was different than expected. They addressed what was typical and expected, and he flipped it on its head. For 2,000 years, the teaching of Jesus has been uncomfortable, unexpected, and challenging. And what stops the teaching of Jesus being amazing and causing people to be amazed and causing people to be astounded at the teaching of Jesus is when it gets filtered, is when it gets edited, and when it gets reinterpreted, when it gets softened, when it gets watered down. The uncomfortable teaching of Jesus becomes comfortable. The unexpected teaching of Jesus, when it's watered down, when it's compromised, becomes ordinary. What's challenging becomes casual. The question of whether the message of Jesus is relevant today is answered by seeing how uncomfortable, how unexpected, and how challenging his teaching still is. The teaching of Jesus is relevant because it inspires change and addresses much needed change. Not because it says what we want it to say. Not because it echoes what the common wisdom of the day says. Not because it leaves us the way it finds us. But the teaching of Jesus will always be relevant because it gives a solid kick in the chair and inspires change. We don't need messages. We don't need teaching to be comfortable and ordinary and casual. We need uncomfortable. We need unexpected. We need challenging. That's why a hallmark, we, if one person claps, we all have to. It's a thing. This is why a hallmark of a healthy church is that the church will heavily encourage people to read the Bible for themselves. If a church is encouraging you to read the Bible for yourself, we as church leaders don't stand a chance of watering down the message if you are getting it yourself. For real. We should expect the teaching of Jesus to make us uncomfortable because you and I are not perfect. We should expect the teaching of Jesus to be unexpected because we are not aware of the problems that he's trying to address at times. We should expect the teaching of Jesus to be challenging because the kind of change that he's calling to isn't comfortable. Last week, Megan, as I mentioned, spoke a great message about restoration and Jesus being the restorer. And there were so many stories from last week that people sent in and Megan used them as part of the message about how God moved in the lives of people. And those stories don't happen because people treated the teaching of Jesus as comfortable, ordinary, or casual. They embraced the loving challenge of the greatest teacher the world will ever know and their lives were changed. That is amazing. Not Jesus saying what I want him to say, but because people responded to the uncomfortable, unexpected, challenging, teaching, amazing things happened. Reaction to Jesus, number two, authority. He taught with real authority. He taught with real authority. Now, to say this, I kind of thought about it as two different ways. The first thing that gave this teaching authority was firstly the content of the message, the content of what Jesus was teaching. And the second thing was the character of the teacher. The content of the message, the teaching had authority. Jesus didn't say mindless things. The teaching of Jesus affected and spoke to their daily lives. It spoke to the everyday experiences and difficulties that the people were facing. In his parables, Jesus would use examples and situations that were known and understood by his listeners. His teaching was both confrontational and comforting. Jesus teaches a whole new value system, including the promise of being loved and blessed by God. And what is it that Jesus taught? 
that being blessed will look different than we expect, that sin is severe and devastating, so we need to do whatever we need to do to get rid of it. He talked about the importance of forgiveness, not just theoretically, but at a very real cost to us, the importance of forgiving others, to be generous and considerate of others, that worry doesn't add anything to our lives, and most importantly, to put the kingdom of God first, and that taking these things seriously isn't just a theoretical exercising, but it's life-changing. The second portion of this is that Jesus had incredible character, spotless character, flawless character, and the people listening could see this. At the time of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already performed miracles which backed up his teaching. This is from the chapter earlier in Matthew 4. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. Jesus had reputation to back up the challenging message that he was teaching. And over the next few years, during his earthly ministry, Jesus' proof of authority would only grow. This ability to speak with an authority simply in of itself is one of the ways Jesus is truly unique. That he's able to decide and he's able to say and he's able to tell people who's in and who's out of the kingdom. That he's able to take that position as judge. Other teachers did not have that authority. But there's nothing braggadocious or prideful or boastful or arrogant about the teaching of Jesus. Quite the opposite. In fact, there are people all over the world who don't have faith in Jesus, who don't trust him as their Lord and Savior and don't trust him as being the promised one of God. But they'll look at the teaching from the Sermon on the Mount and see its intrinsic value, that this is good teaching, this is how to be a good person, this is how to be noble. What's completely clear from the teaching of Jesus, whether someone trusts him as being the Savior of the world or not, is that Jesus loves people. When people are amazed at the authority that Jesus teaches with, it is both the content and the character of the teacher that builds that authority. And the third thing, the third reaction to Jesus the teacher, number three, comparing. Quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Right, it's worth doing a quick historical summary. At the time of Jesus in the first century, the role of the rabbi had become more and more important for the religious Jewish people as they were looking to grow in their relationship with God, as they were looking to be obedient to the covenant that God had made with his people. And so the role of the rabbi had significantly increased really in the time of the exile. So the exile was, give or take, about 700 years before Jesus was born. And at this time, the, uh, about 15% of the population of Jerusalem was kidnapped from Jerusalem, and they had to go by foot to Babylon, which is about 900 miles away. And 900 miles away, they're in Babylon, they're slaves, it's horrible, and it's at that point the light bulb goes off and says, maybe we should have been faithful to God after all. Problem is, there's no temple in Babylon. The temple is 900 miles away. But they want to get back into relationship with God, so they do what they can do, and they start returning to faithfulness, to essentially Bible study. They would study what we now call the Old Testament or the portion of the Old Testament they had at that time. And they would have loyalty and faithfulness and they would try to commit a relationship with God and commit to a life of God. And this big focus on learning the Bible became more and more important. But you can't just have any old buddy teaching the Bible. You need people that know the Bible to teach the Bible. And so consequently, you had these little small groups set up and the person leading the small group and teaching in the small group became the rabbi and the small groups became known as synagogues. 
And then 70 years after they've been kidnapped, they start to return back to Jerusalem. But people don't just go back to Jerusalem. We start getting uh, different Jewish communities springing up in different cities and different towns all over the known world at the time. It becomes known as the diaspora. And they start getting set up all these different places. But the temple is miles away. Well, let's just keep doing synagogue like we did in exile. Let's get a rabbi. Let's get someone that knows what they're doing. And let's start getting back to this Bible study. So this role of Bible study by the time of Jesus was essential. Match on top of that, the temple that was so important to Old Testament worship, the sacrificial system, the priestly system that was set up by Moses was so important, but the temple itself had become compromised. So they don't trust that anyway. The priesthood had become corrupt. There was no trust in the temple system. So this value that was held on the rabbis and the synagogue and Bible study was so high, it was so essential that those people became respected and they became esteemed. The most respectable, the people that were best at this, were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they were the strictest adherents to what the Old Testament has to say. They were the strictest at obeying the law. And if you read more in the New Testament, you see that the Pharisees had taken this obsession to an unhealthy level. What started in exile with a strong desire to get back to God had become something completely foreign. It had now become about keeping the rules because if they didn't, they were terrified that God would do something bad again and kick them back into exile. Fear had taken over. And there's a huge amount of unhealth that was in the Pharisees. They end up plotting to kill not just Jesus, but multiple people if you read about it in the Gospels. All this to say, they were teachers. There were people that the general crowd looked up to. The Pharisees, the best of the best, had zero God's love in their life at all. You may have met somebody that knows the Bible really well. They can win any debate, but they're completely missing the love of God in their life. It's just not coming through. And it's heartbreaking to meet people like this because somewhere in there is a desire to know God and love God and serve God, but they're so driven by something unhealthy that it becomes morphed and manipulated and mutated into something unhealthy and toxic. You may have met people like that. I know I certainly have, and it's heartbreaking every single time. But the Pharisees, that's what comes to my mind, is people like that, people that are driven, not necessarily by the right thing. It's also worth mentioning the scribes that at the time that Jesus was alive, the, uh, the ability to make written documents had become easier. It was still wildly expensive. A piece of paper sort of around this size was about a week's worth of wages. So it's still wildly expensive, but it was a lot easier than 700 years earlier and there were professional people that would make copies of the scriptures, and those people were the scribes. So you read about the scribes often, you'll see that word come up many times in the gospels if you read. And the scribes were experts in the Bible because they spent all day copying it by hand. I don't know about you, but if I spent 40 hours a week copying the Bible by hand, I'd know it pretty well too. That was the scribes. They were well respected, they were honored, and they were understood to be experts. And this is who they compared Jesus to. When teaching is normal, the typical way to teach is to lean on someone else's authority. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does the exact opposite. You've heard, but I say. You've been taught. These guys have taught you. Your tradition has taught you. What you've heard others say, but I say. This is contrary to the typical method where teachers would lean on the authority of someone else. You'd look at someone ancient that was wise and respected and you'd quote them and you'd lean on them and you'd cite them as being an influence for you. But Jesus, he simply lent on himself. And this is not braggadocious or narcissistic. 
It's difficult to assume that Jesus is boastful when he's teaching about love your enemies and blessed are the poor. But there's nothing about the life of Jesus that seems self-absorbed. But when it came to teaching, the only authority he needed to lean on was himself. It's very common even today for people to cite others when trying to win an argument or teach something. In sermons, preachers will often quote someone more respected and esteemed than themselves. I myself do this often. When Megan and I were in Bible college, we had to cite at least 10 external references in our essays, and they had to be credible, authoritative authors. But Jesus didn't need to do any of that. Repeatedly, he says, you've heard, but I say. Jesus doesn't need to lean on anyone else's authority, but I say is all the authority he needs. In youth group, a common question that comes up, because students are geniuses, is can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it up? I still don't know the answer. But there is a few things that God can't do. God can't lie. And Jesus can't appeal to a higher authority than himself. Jesus is as high an authority as it gets. And how do we react properly? What is the way that we should react when Jesus, the ultimate authority, brings us teaching, teaching that's challenging, teaching that's uncomfortable. First thing is we get amazed. We get amazed that the uncomfortable, unexpected, and challenging teaching has come, that we're not seeking to be comfortable, ordinary, and casual. There is nothing amazing about comfortable, ordinary, and casual. What's amazing is uncomfortable, unexpected, challenging. That we look to Jesus as the ultimate authority, the content of his teaching, and the quality of his character. There is no higher authority. Jesus does not and cannot lean on anyone else's authority. And just like that first audience 2,000 years ago compared Jesus, look at the world around us. It's not working. People are not happier or more fulfilled. Megan and I have a number of friends for, for a variety of reasons have walked away from faith over the last 10 years or so. And some of these people, They just spend their time on social media criticizing churches and pastors. You may have heard the popular term of deconstructing, this idea of walking back your faith. My simple observation is that I'm not seeing increased joy or peace in these people's lives. The first hearers of the Sermon on the Mount compared Jesus' teaching to their religious leaders. Maybe we should compare Jesus' teaching to what the world around us is screaming every day, and I'm 100% convinced that Jesus will still amaze people. His authority will be seen, and people's lives will continue to be restored. I'll take a few minutes, and I want to look at the parable of the sower. It's a very well-known parable of Jesus a little later in Matthew's gospel. But Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 13, and then if you kind of go down the page a little bit, he then explains it. So I've kind of intercut them. Uh, This is something that drives Megan crazy. So when I get home, I'm going to hear about it. Hey. So (laughs) I'll read the verses where Jesus teaches, and then I'll read the portion where he explains what he's just taught. So I'll intercut it a little bit. So this is Matthew 13. He, talking about Jesus, told many stories in the form of parables such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. And down to verse 19. 
The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. Verse 5. Other seeds fell on the shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. The seed on the rocky, royal, uh, uh, rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they didn't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understands God's word and produces a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. There was a lack of understanding, and the evil one snatched it away. There was a lack of roots, and they gave up quickly. There were the worries of life, and it got people distracted. But there was the good soil. There was a 30 return, a 60 return, and finally, a 100 return. Now those numbers, 30, 60, 100, Jesus being the greatest teacher the world could ever know, the highest authority, those weren't just arbitrary numbers, a 30-fold return on a harvest with the kind of seeds that Jesus is talking about in that environment, that climate, a 30-fold return would be a great year. Like that's a high-five year. That's a skipping all the way to the market year. A 60-fold return, that is a once-in-a-lifetime bumper crop. Like that's something you tell the grandkids about. This one time I had a 60-fold return on the harvest, and the grandkids look at you and say, no way. But a 100-fold return is flat-out impossible. Impossible. That environment, farming techniques, the seeds they had access to, all the stuff, a 100-fold return is impossible, which means... If we take responsibility, we get our hearts right, we let Jesus teach us, we learn from Him, we come to Him to learn in humility. What He can and wants to do in our hearts and our lives is flat out impossible. It's not remarkable, it's not awesome, it's not noteworthy, it's not worth telling somebody about. It is absolutely impossible. There are many of us here we would point to our own lives and say what God has done in our hearts and our minds is impossible. We are living in the hundredfold return. And the problem is not with the teacher, but with the student. It falls on us to get our hearts right, to listen, to take what Jesus has to say at face value to apply it to our lives, to accept the challenge. So I got a few things, a few practical ways, how to prepare the soil of our hearts and be a good student. First thing, ready to learn. Second thing, trust the teacher. Third thing, put into practice, otherwise known as obey. Fourth thing, 
never stop learning. And fifth, teach others. Be ready to learn. Seek understanding. We just read, that is what destroyed some of the seed, that there was a lack of understanding. The evil one snatched it away because a lack of understanding. What are you expecting? When you open the Bible or you listen to a message, are you ready for a challenge? Are you ready to gather and gain and grow in understanding, to be shown a different way? Are you ready to learn? Are you ready to grow in that understanding? The second thing, to trust the teacher. We should expect the teaching of Jesus to cut against common wisdom and cultural norms. The determination to build our lives on Jesus' teaching and nothing else requires trust. And it is trust all the way, all the way. There are the distractions. There are things that will knock us off course. Trust in the teacher will keep us focused. Third thing, put it into practice to obey. And this is really where the rubber hits the road. Put in the practice. And what I wrote down, this was helpful for me, is don't ignore the small and don't be overwhelmed by the big. Put into practice, obey. Don't ignore the small and don't be overwhelmed by the big. Fourth thing, never stop learning. We just read from the parable of the sower, the importance of having deep roots. Never stop learning, never stop growing, never feel like and convince ourselves we've graduated from being taught by Jesus. Keep on growing, keep on letting those roots go down. Never stop learning. And the fifth thing is teach others. I've heard it said a, a number of different times, a number of different sociological studies have been done, and I would even say from my own experience, it's true that the best way to learn is to have an expectation that you are gonna have to teach someone else. So if you're working a job, especially something like a, a production line or something like that, or in a restaurant or retail, something like that, the idea of like, okay, I'm gonna teach you what you need to learn to do this job, because next week we've got a new trainee and you're gonna need to train them. That person will be the best teacher, like the best student you've ever had, because they're expecting and anticipating to have to teach someone else. What if we had that expectation when we read the Bible? That I might get asked, someone might actually ask me, hey, what'd you read in your Bible this week? At small group, you're not just there to participate, but you're there at life group and you're ready to learn, you're ready to stretch, and you're actually thinking to yourself, and somewhere in your mind is like, you know what, when it's time to say something, I'm gonna say something that might help somebody in this room. We will be the best life group participants we've ever had. If we turned up to church and say like, you know what, I'm gonna have my heart wide open because maybe, just maybe, something that that British guy is yakking on about is gonna be helpful when I get to work on Wednesday and I can share it with somebody. Have an expectation and anticipation of God's gonna use me, not just to be a student, but to also teach. If we have that expectation, I promise, we'll be the best students the world's ever known. And we will learn from the greatest teacher that the world will ever know. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the ultimate authority. Ready to learn, trust the teacher, put into practice, never stop learning, and teach others. You know, God loves us so much. It's indescribable to be able to say how much God loves us. It amazes me that not only did Jesus go to the cross, so he could be on the cross and pay the price for my sin, your sin, and anybody that would call on his name. It amazes me that not only did he do that, he is also committed to cleaning us up and teaching us a better way. He set us free, and he committed to teaching us how to live in freedom. 
He's restored and repaired our broken relationship with God, and he's committed to teaching us how to live in a healed and restored relationship with God. Jesus restores our relationship with God and teaches us how to live in a restored relationship with God. Jesus teaches us to be better than the Pharisees, to live prioritizing the kingdom of God above anything else, to be perfected and made complete. And for that, we need him to be that teacher in our lives because no one is a self-taught disciple of Jesus. And we will always have the temptation to build on sand and to take the easy way. But when the storm comes, we find it's worth it to be founded on the teaching of Jesus. Teaching that's uncomfortable, teaching that's unexpected and challenging, even though we naturally prefer comfortable, ordinary, and casual. The authority of Jesus' teaching is seen both in the content and the character of the teacher. Jesus is the highest authority possible. And to be good students, we're ready to learn, we're ready to trust the teacher, to put into practice what he teaches, to never stop learning, and then to teach others. A couple of questions for you. Hopefully it's helpful if you make a note of these, you have a chance to think about this this week and pray through it, perhaps talk it over with somebody. But the first one is this, is what voices are louder than Jesus in your life? What voices are louder than Jesus in your life? What foundation are you building on? Are we giving the sand more volume in our life than we should? What voices are louder than Jesus in your life? Second one, what's one aspect of Jesus' teaching that you can implement today? What's one aspect of his teaching? If you're unsure about what to say to that, take 20 minutes, read the Sermon on the Mount. There is a 100% chance there will be something. What's one aspect of Jesus' teaching that you can implement today? The parable that we read earlier on, Matthew 7, 24, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the wind beats against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. My friends, I've been talking about Jesus the teacher, but there's a first step to all of this. The first step to building our lives on solid ground, on bedrock. When the storms come, it doesn't all just collapse around us. That our eternity can be secured, that our relationship with God can be restored. That first step is making that decision to follow Jesus, to put Him in that central spot in our lives, to, to live our lives to orientated around Him, Him being the Lord, the majesty, the King of our lives. And before we go any further, I want to give anyone here an opportunity. If you've never made that decision or if you did a long time ago, but you know that you're not living out that decision, you want to recommit that today, I'd love to pray for you. And I give you my word, we're not going to make anything weird or awkward or strange for anybody. We're not going to embarrass you in any way. But I'd love to know who I'm praying for when we pray together in just a moment. So if I could invite everyone here just to close your eyes, bow your heads, just to give privacy and discretion to everyone around you. If that's you today, if you be honest enough and brave enough to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God. I'm not building my life on His teaching. But I want to start today. I want to recognize that God is for real, that He loves me, that He sent His Son to the cross, that I can have freedom in Him. I can have a restored relationship with God in Him. I want to start this today. If that's you, I would love to pray for you. So if that's you, if you could just put your hand in the air while no one's looking around, just so I know who I'm praying for when we pray in a moment. Amen. Anybody else here? Thank you. 
Wonderful. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Thank you. Anyone else here? I give you my word. We won't embarrass you. But if you'd like to be included today, please just raise a hand so I know who we're praying for. Amen. Thank you. Wonderful. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate those people making the best decision anyone can make. Amen. Well, we're going to pray a prayer together, and we do this at the end of every service. The words are going to be on the screen. I want to invite you to pray along. And if you're one of those people that put your hand up, pray this, believing that praying a prayer like this starts to change things. So come on, everybody. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, everybody, one more time. Let's celebrate with people.